With the exception of the biblical account of creation, with its unabashed assertion that all things came into being by the sovereign will and word of God, along with the corresponding denial of the prevailing evolutionary doctrine of the origin of life, I would say that the most widely denied and severely ridiculed biblical claim is probably that of the Genesis flood. Mention the name Noah or the word ark in secular company and people will either look at you as if you had a third eye in the middle of your forehead or they will simply laugh you to scorn. The Genesis flood has long been the object of ridicule and derision amongst the people of the world. Skeptics dismiss the flood narrative as an ancient myth believed only by primitive peoples, perhaps borrowed from pagan cultures, containing maybe a kernel of fact, but has been wrapped in countless layers of mythological embellishment. For modern peoples to actually believe the flood narrative as an historical fact appears to most today as hopelessly backward and laughably ignorant. To them, and in their view, we might as well be ostriches with our heads stuck in the sand. I remember sitting in the airport in Managua last summer. I was waiting to board a plane to take our mission team home from Nicaragua. And a broad-shouldered college student from Alabama who looked as if he could have stepped right out of a frat house sat down a few seats away from me. And I kind of eyeballed him for a little bit as I went through this uh, brief internal struggle over whether or not to engage him in conversation since I was tired and our mission trip was over. But uh, the Holy Spirit prevailed. And I scooted over and started to talk with him. It turns out that he had been in the country for several weeks doing language immersion. It hadn't had much effect, he reported, as he still was no better at Spanish than he was when he came. Uh, Seeing our team's obnoxious, matching neon blue t-shirts, he surmised that we were a church group and asked if we had been in Nicaragua doing mission work. I said that we had, and I I proceeded to tell him what we had been doing over the past week. I found out that he had some familiarity with, with church life. His mother was a Christian, his dad an agnostic. He clearly thought his mother somewhat ridiculous and respected his father's skepticism. I asked him what he believed about Jesus and the Bible and the Christian faith, and he confessed that he didn't know what he believed, but he was pretty sure that the Bible couldn't be trusted as a source of historical truth. Maybe a collection of moral stories. I asked him if he'd ever, in fact, read the Bible. He said, no. I said, well, if you had, you would know that it never claims to be a collection of moral stories. It claims to be a record of God's historical dealings with historical people. I told him that I believed the Bible was the inerrant, infallible, inspired Word of God, and I'll never forget the look of utter disbelief on his face. And do you know the first place that he went to test my faith in the Scriptures? 
you mean that you believe all that stuff about Noah and the ark and the animals and the flood? See, the Genesis flood was for this young man the foremost example of the Bible, which in his view was full of non-historical, non-factual myths believed only by silly, simple people like his mother. Now, I share that story to illustrate the reason that we need to be equipped to handle questions about Genesis. Genesis is the battleground of today's culture. It is the field on which the church faces the most virulent attacks upon our book and upon our faith. Creation and flood. Those are the first two places unbelieving people will go to question the Bible as the inerrant, infallible, divinely inspired, historically factual book that we claim it to be. And we need to be ready to give a defense for the hope that we have. So writes the Apostle Peter in 1 Peter chapter 3 and verse 15. But in your hearts, honor Christ the Lord as holy, always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for the hope that is in you. Yet do it with gentleness and with respect. That's the apostolic admonition to the church, to us. You don't have an excuse to be unprepared to talk about Genesis. Now, as we'll go through today, that doesn't mean that you have to have advanced degrees in geology and anthropology and philosophy in order to speak intelligently. What it does mean is that you have an apostolic admonition to pay attention this morning as we walk through some of the common objections to the Genesis flood that are out there in the world today. Are you prepared to do what 1 Peter 3.15 tells you that you need to be prepared to do? Are you prepared to make a defense? Do you have a reasoned hope? Do you know not only what you believe, but why you believe it? That's what today's message is all about. My plan... As you probably guessed from the part one section of the title, my plan is to take two weeks to cover the flood of Genesis 6 and 7. This week, I want to approach the text from an apologetic standpoint. I want to answer some of the most common objections to the historicity of the Genesis flood. The next week, I want to come back and I want to approach the text from a theological standpoint, asking what Genesis 6 and 7 has to teach us, the church, about God, about man, about judgment, and about salvation. This week, I'm going to be doing more of teaching about the flood. Next week, we're going to circle back around and I'm going to preach the flood. So as I see it, there are three common objections to the Genesis flood as an historical event and not a pagan myth. Number one, objection number one, the ark is not big enough to hold two of every kind of animal. You ever heard that? Objection number two, the flood is a myth borrowed from ancient cultures particularly the Babylonian culture. 
And number three, the geological record does not support a global cataclysmic flood. This morning I want to deal with these three objections in turn, and then I want to conclude by examining kind of an in-house discussion of whether or not the flood was a global worldwide event or a local event centralized in the ancient Mesopotamian valley. In other words, did the flood waters cover the entire earth or was the flood more localized to the regions between the Tigris and the Euphrates River where the earliest civilizations lived? So let's deal with the first objection. Objection number one, the ark is not big enough to hold two of every kind of animal on the earth. Um, Probably the most common objection that you will hear with regard to the Genesis flood. There's no way that millions upon millions of animal species could have been contained in the ark, let alone contained and cared for, for over a year. That is, after all, what Genesis states, isn't it? Well, yes and no. Let's start by looking at the ark. Genesis chapter 6, verses 14 to 16 gives us its dimensions. God tells Noah, make yourself an ark of gopher wood. Make rooms in the ark and cover it inside and out with pitch. This is how you are to make it. The length of the ark, 300 cubits, its breadth, 50 cubits, and its height, 30 cubits. Make a roof for the ark and finish it to a cubit above and set the door of the ark in its side. Make it with lower, second, and third decks. Now, the exact length of a cubit is unknown, but the general consensus is that a cubit equates to about a foot and a half, about 18 inches. That would mean that the dimensions of the ark are somewhere in the neighborhood of 450 feet long, 75 feet wide, and 45 feet high, or roughly the size of a modern ocean liner. There was nothing remotely like it in the ancient world. James Boyce writes, quote, In fact, it was not until 1858 that a vessel of greater length was constructed. It was the Great Eastern, which was 692 by 83 by 30 in its dimensions. In addition to its size, the ark's box-like structure would have made it exceedingly stable, particularly in raging waters, nearly impossible, in fact, to capsize. Now, the million-dollar question is, would millions upon millions of animal and bird species fit onto a vessel of this size? Well, here we run into the difficulty, we experienced it back in Genesis 1, of knowing what exactly the Bible means when it says two of every kind. The Hebrew word is min, min, two of every kind of animal and bird species went into the ark. Look with me at chapter 6, verses 19 to 21. And of every living thing of all flesh, you shall bring two of every sort into the ark to keep them alive with you. They shall be male and female, of the birds according to their kinds, and the animals according to their kinds, and of every creeping thing of the ground according to its kind. 
Two of every sort shall come in to you to keep them alive. Also take with you every sort of food that is eaten and store it up. It shall serve as food for you and for them. As you can see, a lot rides on how we translate and understand the word men. The question is, what does the Hebrew word men mean? Well, we need to begin by asserting that men, kind, most likely does not correspond to the word species in our modern taxonomic classification system. You say, what's that? Well, you learned about it in ninth grade biology, right? If you can still remember for your test for Mrs. Richardson at Neosho High School, it would be kingdom, phylum, class, order, family, genus, species. Ashley probably had some mnemonic device to memorize that. Kingdom, phylum, class, order, family, genus, species. So species is the largest and the lowest of the classifications in modern taxonomy. Well, the Hebrews didn't operate by our modern taxonomy, and the best we can tell from this, the usage of this word in other places is that it corresponds somewhere, not, not to species, but somewhere between family and genus in our modern classification system. What making it even more difficult is there is evidence that the word kind of floated up and down depending on the context and the way in which it was used. The point is that the number of animals on the ark is not as large as you might think. It did not contain every modern species of animal on the earth today. That's not what Genesis is claiming. It contained breeding pairs of animals which possessed within their bodies and in their genetic code the genetic potential for speciation and variation. In other words, not only is the ark bigger than you might think, but the number of animals contained on the ark is smaller than you might think. Some conservative estimates, and I don't know of any group of evangelicals more conservative when it comes to the ark than the answers in Genesis, folks. And they say that the total number of animals on the ark was probably somewhere around 16,000, not millions upon millions. 16,000. And that these 16,000 animals would probably have required somewhere in the neighborhood of only 47% of the ark's floor space. Food and water would have required another 15 to 21% of the space. In other words, largest estimates only account for about 75% of the square footage of the ark. Combine this with the very real possibility that the breeding pairs of animals were probably yet not yet fully mature and fully grown, and the supposed impossibility of fitting all of those animals on the ark just disappears. It's not impossible. As for all of the other questions that often arise with regard to the ark and the animals and the size of the ark, listen. Christians have never claimed that this was a natural event. Explainable only by natural laws. 
This was an act of supernatural judgment upon the earth and supernatural preservation by God. Your job as a believer in giving a defense for the hope that you have is not to explain supernatural events by natural causes. That's not your job. Your job, rather, is to show that one cannot simply dismiss the biblical account as a blatant impossibility when it is, in fact, not impossible at all. Now, let's deal with the second objection. That the Genesis flood narrative is simply borrowed from other ancient cultures, particularly the Babylonian culture. You'll often hear skeptics, history of religions folks, cite the Babylonian flood tradition known as the Gilgamesh epic. I remember hearing about that in high school. The Gilgamesh epic as evidence that the Hebrews are not the only ancient peoples with the flood mythology. They're not. And Christians should readily admit that flood traditions can be found in numerous ancient cultures. Why? Well, number one, because it's true. We should admit true things. But secondly, because there's two different ways of examining the evidence and interpreting the evidence. Okay, one way of interpreting the evidence of numerous flood traditions in numerous cultures spread all over the world is to say that since other ancient cultures contain flood traditions, then the Hebrew flood tradition, as recorded in the book of Genesis, is just one of many and can be disregarded along with the rest as ancient myth. That's one way of looking at it. For example, the ancient Roman poet Ovid tells the story of a great flood in his classic work, Metamorphoses. But while modern people view Metamorphoses as a spectacular example of ancient Greco-Roman literature, nobody thinks that the stories contained therein are actually historical. Likewise, skeptics claim, while the book of Genesis may be a wonderful example of ancient Hebrew literature, it's nothing but a mythology of another ancient culture. All right, that's one way of looking at the evidence. There's another way, though, which is to say that the abundance of flood traditions in ancient culture spread all over the globe has a reason behind it. And that reason is that Every culture all over the globe descends from Noah and carried with it the story of the flood as they migrated across the world. While over time the truth became corrupted and cloaked in layers of mythology, the central core of truth can be found in each one of these cultures. In other words, maybe... The reason so many ancient cultures contain flood traditions is because there actually was a flood. James Boyce, in his commentary on Genesis, goes on for pages describing these ancient flood traditions. He even cites a table of flood traditions that are arranged geographically by global distribution. For instance, in the Middle East and Africa, there are 18 known distinct flood traditions traditions. In the Pacific Islands, there are 38. In the Far East, there are 20. In Europe and Asia, there are 13. 
There are 21 flood traditions from distinct Greco-Roman authors. In North America, there are 58 distinct flood traditions. In Central America, there are 21, and in South America, there are 24, all over the globe. And what is even more remarkable is the degree of agreement among these various and distinct flood traditions. Of those hundreds of flood traditions that I just listed, in 88%, there is a family that is spared. In 70%, the survival of that family is due to a large boat. In 95%, the sole cause of the devastation upon the earth is the flood. In 66%, the flood is due to man's wickedness. In 67%, animals as well as this family are saved. In 57%, the survivors end up on the top of a mountain. And in smaller percentages, birds are sent forth, a rainbow is mentioned, and a total of eight, not nine, not seven, but eight persons are saved. Even more interesting, when you talk about global distribution, is that the flood traditions in the Middle East are the closest to the Genesis account, and they get gradually more diverse the further one gets from the epicenter, which looks to us like the migration of Genesis 8 and 9. So far from undermining the historical validity of the Genesis flood, the many and varied flood traditions from around the globe actually serve to support the Bible's assertion of a catastrophic worldwide flood and of the distribution of all humankind from one family. So when someone says, you can find flood traditions all over the world, you say, yes, exactly. Why do you think that is? Third objection says, if there was a cataclysmic flood of the sort which Genesis describes, wouldn't we expect there to be ample evidence of it in the geological record? Well, yes, we would. Does such evidence exist? Yes, it does. Now, although we could be here all day discussing this, and I would be way out of my depth in doing most of it, let me summarize for you six geological evidences for an historic flood. Okay? I get these from Andrew Snelling again at the Answers in Genesis organization. Evidence number one, fossils of sea creatures high above sea level. For example, you ever been to the Grand Canyon? The Kaibab limestone, which sits at the very top strata of the Grand Canyon, 7,000, 8,000 feet above sea level, it's the topmost sequence of the geological strata in Arizona, as well as the rock layers beneath, contain large numbers of marine fossils. Okay? Marine fossils have even been found in the uppermost layers of the Himalayas. How'd they get there? Well, Andrew Snelling writes, quote, all geologists agree that these marine fossils must have been buried in these limestone beds when the latter were deposited by ocean waters, end quote. What they disagree on is the time frame in which that happened. Evidence number two, you have the rapid burial of plants and animals all over the globe, North America, Europe, all over. Vast fossil graveyards have been found containing great varieties of animals in the same 
location. For instance, in the Green River Formation in Wyoming, alligator, fish, including sunfish, deep-sea bass, chubs, pickerel, herring, and pike, three to seven feet long, birds, turtles, mammals, mollusks, crustaceans, and many varieties of insects, and palm leaves, seven to nine feet long, were buried together. You can find similar phenomenon in north-central Europe, and many other places likewise where a great variety and number of fossils are found in the same place, in the same location, buried at the same time sequence, and preserved to an exquisite degree, pointing to the indisputable conclusion that there was a rapid burial in mud and sediment. In fact, James Boyce writes that many of these large caches of animal fossils are found on top of isolated hills of considerable height, leading to the conclusion that a great flood of water is the only reasonable explanation for this strange phenomenon. What else could have driven these animals together on hilltops and caused them to perish in such numbers but the waters of an all-engulfing flood? Third, Rapidly deposited sediment layers spread across vast areas. Uniform sediment layers have been identified that stretch across continents and even from one continent to the next. Sediment layers which bear the exact same features and contain the exact same fossils, which would seem to indicate that the same currents of water rapidly deposited these uniform layers across the top of the continents. Fourth, Sediment layers that have been transported from long distances. Again, in places like the Grand Canyon or places like it where um, rocks, uh, rock strata and layers are exposed to our investigation. Sand waves, what are known as sand waves, have been detected in the sandstone. The question geologists ask are where did this sand come from and how did it get 8,000 feet up in the Grand Canyon? Well, sandstone contains the mineral zircon, which usually contains the radioactive element uranium. Why is that important? Well, the radioactive half-life of uranium can be dated, and it can be located. And it seems that the sand grains in the Navajo sandstone of the Grand Canyon in Arizona came from the Appalachian Mountains in Pennsylvania, Upper New York, and even into Canada, which means that there was sand carried more than 1,250 miles across the North American continent. Fifth, rapid or no erosion between strata. In places where multiple layers of rock strata are exposed and visible, such as in the Grand Canyon, there is in some cases evidence of rapid erosion, such as would be expected from a cataclysmic flood, and in other instances, there's little to no erosion at all meaning that the layers of sediment were deposited in rapid succession with little little to no intervening time for the slow processes like wind erosion to wear them down. And sixth, many strata were laid down in rapid succession while they were still wet, which causes folding in the rocks. The Grand Canyon, for instance, contains several examples of folded sedimentary layers. And these visible folds in the rocks, you just Google them, you'll be able to see them. Visible folds in the rocks are important because sediment 
only folds when it is wet and pliable, and before the process known as diagenesis, which is the cementing of soft, wet sediment into hard, brittle rock, could take place. Now, secular geologists won't agree with any of this, all right? You're not going to whip these out like a smoking gun and they'll say, ah, you got me, I've been lying all along. Because they operate with a certain presupposition called uniformitarianism. And uniformitarianism says that the earth has always operated by the same natural laws and processes by which it operates today, and that you can therefore look at the present rate of erosion and extrapolate that backwards and say that the erosion that we see in places like the Grand Canyon, for instance, must have occurred over hundreds of millions of years through uniform processes rather than through a cataclysmic event such as the Genesis flood. So they explain the evidences that I just gave you in accordance with their uniformitarian presuppositions. They have hypotheses, too, to explain the phenomena that we observe. The question is, which hypotheses make the best sense of the evidence? Because they both can't be right. Now, before we close, right, what I've been doing in this first half, I've been walking through some of the most common, the three most common objections that skeptics will raise to the historicity, the factual nature of the Genesis flood. My hope is that this has done two things. Number one, it has maybe firmed up a little bit of the foundation under your feet for believing that this actually is a scientific possibility, not just a possibility, but a probability, and also to equip you to be able to do 1 Peter 3.15, to give an answer for the hope that you have. In the last part of this message, I want to I shift from dealing with the skeptics to a more in-house debate, and I want to ask the question of, was the flood a global event, or was it a local event contained in the Mesopotamian region? Now, for those who accept the evidence that I've just gone through, this is kind of a moot point. The flood traditions presented come from every corner of the globe. The geological evidence is worldwide as well, therefore pointing to a worldwide flood. But there are some, they write books, you might read them. There are some who deny that the flood traditions can be cited as evidence of a global flood and dispute the creationist geologists are reading the evidence accurately. So in this last point, what I want to do is step out of the realm of geology and out of the realm of anthropology and out of the realm of science altogether. And I want to go back to the Bible. And I want to ask, what does the Bible say as to the extent of the flood? Because the Bible, not anthropology and not geology and not philosophy, the Bible remains our sole and sufficient rule of faith and practice, and by it, fundamentally, we must examine whether it requires belief in a global cataclysmic flood. Some Christian theologians and scholars have posited that the Genesis flood was a local event 
restricted to the Mesopotamian region, and is described, and here's a big word, but you need to know it, it's described in phenomenological language, okay? Impress your friends at parties, uh, your lunch crew, you can impress, impress the Methodists when you meet them at McAllister's. What did you talk about today? We learned about phenomenal, phenomenological language. Just make sure you pronounce it right. Phenomenological language is language that is written from the point of view of the ancient peoples who observed the events and who wrote them down. Okay? Uh, let me give you an example of what I mean. Here's an example, an undisputed example of phenomenological language. It comes from Genesis 41, verse 54, which says, There was a famine in all lands, but in all the land of Egypt there was bread. Verse 57, Moreover, all the earth came to Egypt to Joseph to buy grain because the famine was severe over all the earth. That's clearly phenomenological language. It's not saying that the entire earth, North America, on the other side of the globe from the Middle East, was undergoing a famine, and that every person on the face of the earth, even the indigenous North American tribes, crossed the Bering Strait and traveled all across the Russian continent and came down to Egypt to buy bread. Clearly, that's not what it's saying. What it is saying is that the world which Joseph knew, that is, the ancient Middle East, was affected by a famine, and that people from all over the Middle East, his world, came to him to purchase grain. So all the earth, Genesis 41, did not mean the same thing for Joseph or Moses that it means for us. So I think there's a fair argument to be made for Genesis describing a local flood in phenomenological language. And if that's the case, it doesn't really alter the point of the text. Everything in the world which Noah and his family knew was destroyed because of the wickedness of man. But I don't think they're right. I believe there's good reason to take the biblical descriptions at face value and hold to a universal flood, a flood that covered the entirety of the globe. I'm going to give you six. You'll see them on the back of your bulletins. I'm going to give you six reasons that the Bible demands a global cataclysmic flood. Number one, the abundance of universal descriptions. I could probably go the route of phenomenological language in Genesis 6 if if phrases like all the earth occurred once or twice, but universal language occurs over 30 times in Genesis 6 to 9. Henry Morris writes, quote, the wording of the entire record, both here and throughout Genesis 6 through 9, could not be improved upon if the intention of the writer was to describe a universal flood. But as a description of a river overflow, a local flood, it's completely misleading and exaggerated, end quote. Evidence number two, the duration of the flood points in the direction of a global cataclysm. After the fountains of the deep burst, the windows of the heavens were opened and rain fell for 40 days and 40 nights, verses 11 and 12 of chapter 7. During these 40 days, the earth was covered in the deluge to a depth of more than 20 feet, verses 17 to 20. 
It wasn't until 150 days later that the rains, after the rains began, that the ark came to rest on the top of Mount Ararat, chapter 8, verses 3 to 4. Ten weeks after that, the mountains became visible, chapter 8 and verse 5, and 21 weeks after that, Noah and his family could exit the ark, chapter 8, verses 13 to 19. And as James Boyce mentions, this time period of a little over a year doesn't preclude the possibility that the waters continued to recede from the earth for years to come. Which caused John Whitcomb to write, quote, How a flood of such depth and duration could have covered only a limited portion of the earth's surface has never been satisfactorily explained. End quote. Third biblical evidence. The size and the shape of the ark would be absurd if it was speaking of a local flood. The ark, as I said earlier, was approximately 450 feet long, 75 feet wide, and 45 feet high. It was the size of a modern ocean liner, not a riverboat. Moreover, the dimensions of the ark made it exceedingly stable, almost impossible to capsize in the raging waters of a flood. So you've got to ask the question, why was the ark so huge? Well, the Bible tells us it was to accommodate two of every kind of animal, and so the supplies needed to feed everything on board. But ask yourself this question. If God told Noah a hundred years before it happened that he was going to flood the region, why would Noah have built this enormous ark? Why not just migrate out of the region? along with the animals, and then come back when the waters were gone. It would have served the same effect. You say, God told me that that this area is going to be flooded. Nobody else believes. They're swept over in a flood. They're destroyed. Wickedness is eradicated, and you're spared. It It would have served the same purpose, but that's not what God does, and that's not what Noah does. He builds a ginormous boat. Number four. God promised never again to destroy the earth by flood. Genesis 8, 21 and 22, Genesis 9, 11 and 15. For instance, in Genesis 9, 11, the Lord promises Noah, I will establish my covenant with you that never again shall all flesh be cut off by the waters of the flood and never again shall there be a flood to destroy the earth. Which would seem to make sense only if the flood were global because the Mesopotamian region has been flooded numerous times. Number five, Genesis 9 and 10 appears to trace all peoples of the earth back to Noah and his sons. Genesis 9, 18 to 19, the sons of Noah who went forth from the ark were Shem, Ham, and Japheth. Ham was the father of Canaan. These three were the sons of Noah, and from these the people of the whole earth were dispersed. Then in Genesis 10, these are the clans of the sons of Noah according to their genealogies in their nations. And from these, the nations spread abroad on the earth after the flood, which wouldn't seem to make much sense if there were people on the other side of the earth who were unaffected by such events. Especially then in light of later passages like when Paul on Mars Hill tells the Athenian that from one man God created all peoples on the face of the earth. And number six, biblical references outside Genesis presuppose a global flood, which I think is by far the most 
devastating evidence against the local flood theory. Uh, Without the testimony of the later inspired writers, I could probably be persuaded that the context and concern of the original author was the Middle East, the Mesopotamian region, that the language of Genesis 6 and 7 is phenomenological, but phenomenological language does not account for the references of later biblical authors whose world was much larger than Moses's. For instance, in Psalm 104, the psalmist utilizes the same universal language as does Moses in Genesis 6. Psalm 104, verse 5, He set the earth on its foundation so that it would never be moved. You covered it with the deep as with a garment, and the waters stood above the mountains. At your rebuke they fled. At the sound of your thunder they took to flight. The mountains rose, the valleys sank down to the place that you appointed for them. You set a boundary that they may not pass so that they might not again cover the earth. Okay, The same earth that God set upon its foundations, which is universal language in verse 5, it says in verse 6 that he also covered with waters such that they stood above the mountains. And according to the rule of Hebrew parallelism, if it's universal in verse 5, it needs to be universal in verse 6. But someone might say Psalm 104 is poetry, and poetry utilizes figurative languages and and symbolism and metaphor. I would agree. But what about 2 Peter? Peter, who was well aware of a much bigger world than the ancient Near East, and who wrote in straightforward epistolary prose, not given to symbolism, had this to say, 2 Peter 3, 4. They will say, scoffers, with regard to the second coming of Christ, where is the promise of His coming? For ever since the fathers fell asleep, all things are continuing as they were from the beginning of creation. For they deliberately overlooked this fact that the heavens existed long ago and the earth was formed out of water and through water by the word of God. And that by means of these, the world that then existed was deluged with water and perished. But by the same word, the heavens and earth that now exist are stored up for fire, being kept until the day of judgment and destruction of the ungodly. The scoffers in 2 Peter 3 seem to operate by the same uniformitarianism as the skeptics of today. In other words, saying that the laws of nature in the past were just as constant as they are in the present, and they will remain constant into the future. Therefore, because God does not intervene in the world today and cause global cataclysms, He didn't in the past, and He won't in the future. Therefore, the idea of Christ's second coming in judgment to destroy the world at the end of the age is, to the skeptic's mind, utter nonsense. They can't imagine it happening in the future because they don't see it happening now. Well, to counter this argument, Peter appeals to two historical events that blow the uniformitarian doctrine out of the water. The first is the creation of the world, and the second is the flood, which Peter says that the world which then existed was deluged with water and perished. Okay? Creation, universal, flood, universal. And so in the same way, Peter says, the present world will one day be destroyed by fire. Now, I want you to notice the scope of these three events, okay? Creation, flood, destruction by fire. 
all of them demand a global scale. If the return of Christ is universal and creation is universal, then by definition, the flood must also be universal. The modern doctrine of uniformitarianism, which is the basis of all skepticism with regard to creation and flood, argues that global floods do not and cannot happen today because they did not and could not happen in the past. The Apostle Paul, who is inspired of the Holy Spirit, begs to differ. Peter, rather. He says, just because God does not ordinarily intervene to disrupt the laws of nature does not mean that he did not, does not, or will not extraordinarily intervene to fulfill his sovereign purpose. See, I I don't fault anyone for looking at the evidence and concluding that the Genesis flood was a local event restricted to the ancient Mesopotamian Valley. I'm not going to call people like that heretics. You shouldn't either. But I don't believe it's the best handling of the text. And I don't believe it's a very faithful reading of the Bible as a whole. Now, here's what we've done today. We've looked at three common objections which skeptics will will throw against the Genesis narrative of the flood and given you not only reasons to believe, but the ability to defend those reasons. And we've looked at a more in-house debate over whether the flood was a global event or whether it was a local event centralized in the ancient Middle East. I hope that this morning has been helpful for you. Tomorrow, or not tomorrow, next week I'm going to come back and we're going we're to start back at the beginning of Genesis 6-5 and I'm going to preach this text theologically. This has been an apologetic message. But before we leave, I want to give you one final word of exhortation. It's this. You with me? Do not base your faith upon rocks and ancient flood traditions. See, apologetics can be useful to strengthen our faith and to give us a more reasoned hope. But they ought not be the foundation of our hope. Nothing that we've talked about today ought to be the foundation of your faith because there will always be someone to come along who knows more geology and knows more anthropology than you do. I'm not saying that they would be right I'm saying that they're going to throw arguments for which you're not going to have answers. And if that's the foundation of your faith, you're going to feel severely shaken. If God had intended for apologetic arguments like what I've given today to be the foundation of faith, then everyone would need a PhD in science or philosophy in order to believe. No, God has given us a more sure foundation than rocks and cultural traditions. He has raised His Son from the dead. Your faith in the historicity of the Genesis flood must not be based ultimately on physical evidence, but upon the resurrection of Jesus Christ. For me, the historicity of the flood is settled by the Christological argument that I I laid out for you in the very first sermon in the Genesis series. It goes like this. Jesus of Nazareth is risen from the dead. Therefore, he is the Son of God and Lord of all. Since Jesus Christ is the Son of God and Lord of all, therefore, everything that he taught is true and trustworthy. 
Since everything Jesus taught is true and trustworthy, therefore everything he said with regard to the scriptures is also true and trustworthy. And what did Jesus say with regard to the scriptures? He said that they were inspired, infallible, authoritative, and historically factual. And by the way, Jesus specifically refers to the Genesis flood as an historical event in Matthew 24, 37 to 39, and Luke 17, 26 to 27. In other words, I submit to you that the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead is sufficient evidence to believe the Genesis account of the flood. You remember the college student in Managua I told you about at the beginning? Ironically, his name is Christian. When he questioned me about Noah and the ark and the animals and the flood, I didn't respond by listing to him the six geological evidences for the Genesis flood or reporting to him a few of the ancient flood traditions that are found in cultures around the world. I took him to the resurrection of Christ and I laid on him the Christological argument for the inerrancy of Scripture. And I took him directly to the question of whether or not he believed Jesus of Nazareth was risen from the dead. And if so, did he comprehend the eternal implications that that has for his immortal soul? If Christ is risen from the dead, I told him, then everything changes, including whether or not you believe the story about Noah, the ark, the animals, and the flood. About a half hour later, Christian and I were bowing together in a Nicaraguan airport as he called upon the name of the Lord. So I ask, what about you? My question to you is not whether you believe in the Genesis flood. I sincerely hope you do, but that's not my ultimate concern this morning. My question is whether or not you believe that Jesus of Nazareth is risen from the dead. Because if he is, then everything changes. If Christ is risen from the dead, then he is Son of God and Lord of all. He is the one mediator between God and man. And there is salvation to be found in no one else, for there is no other name given among men by which we must be saved. The times of ignorance God has overlooked, but he now commands all men everywhere to repent, having furnished proof to all men by raising his son from the dead. So we could talk all morning long about a flood and rocks and animals and a boat. But the main question that you need to go out of here having answered is, is Jesus of Nazareth alive from the dead? And if he is, what does that mean for you?